First Kings chapter 3. After chapter 3, we're going to have to just cherry-pick some verses from the oncoming chapters 3 and 4, maybe some of 5, because it's just heavy-duty reading. But tonight, we get every verse, hopefully. Solomon's mixed qualities. That's what stands out to me. Uh, you, you know, receiving a gift from God does not guarantee that the recipient will use that gift to the glory of God, or use it at all. Judas Iscariot comes to mind as the poster boy for this. But Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, uh, in both his letters, and they're about two years apart, he writes the first letter and he says to Timothy, do not neglect the gift that is in you. And, you know, Timothy, he's probably in his 30s at this point, and uh, ministering, had been ministering with Paul through some heavy-duty service uh, also. And yet, he, Paul feels he needs to remind Timothy to stir that gift up. He wasn't going to take for granted that this is Timothy and he's okay. Then in his second letter, he writes again and he says, Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. This was personal, too, with Paul. And the lesson, of course, is, is goes back to my opening words, uh, receiving the, a gift from God or a gift in the Spirit, that is, there's <clears throat> no guarantee that we're going to use it or not abuse it. And we have to stay awake on these matters. And this is the story with Solomon, because God certainly blessed Solomon, and he used some of his gifts, and, but then he let them all go south. He fell into uh, a temptation of, in his particular case, of a leader who felt that he could do more for the kingdom without faith. Oh, he might have, would have argued with that. Well, I did trust God. I do believe in God. But he employed these methods that really were against faith. We see that the New Testament church does this oftentimes. Rather than trusting God, they start employing maybe business tactics and, uh, you know, marketing the church rather than waiting on the Holy Spirit or living within their means, their spiritual means. Well, Solomon, uh, he is going to use diplomacy and uh, different policies of the surrounding kings. He incorporates into Israel, and he, he just makes a mess of things. Psalm 51, verse 6, Behold, speaking of what God desires, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. It's got to get inside. It's not enough to have it in your head. And this was Solomon. He didn't let it get, it got in for a while. It was there, but it, it did not stay there. The inward man is the upward man. It's the higher self in Christ. And for the Jew, it was in Yahweh. Romans 7, Paul says, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man the spiritual man, the man of truth, Solomon's kingdom would bedazzle unbelievers, or, or shallow believers even. But it disappointed God, and it saddens the devout. What Christian reads the story of Solomon and does not feel a, a, a sadness? A lot of Christians feel judgment before sadness. Uh, I don't think that's most of the time. It's, that's not only is it not necessary, it's a hindrance to grace. Uh, there's no need. If there's a need to, to pass judgment, then yes, we do. But as a rule, 
uh, we don't want to become self-righteous as though we are so much better. Paul writes, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Solomon didn't get that verse. But he had no reason to miss the truths that are here. All he had to do was follow his father's lead, spiritual lead. Well, that's just the background on what's coming to this. Again, we're talking about Solomon's mixed qualities, and we all have them, the flesh and the spirit. And they, These two are contrary to each other, and they war continuously with each other, which does, in fact, help us be gracious towards those who are struggling and firm against those who are just uh, blatant in their sin. Verse 1, Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. And then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of Yahweh and the wall around Jerusalem. Well, I don't think the historian is is strict to chronological sequence, trying to figure out when did this happen after he did it. Just... We, this, the facts stand by themselves. They are sufficient. We don't really need to link them with anything. But his treaties with other rulers included marrying their daughters. And this would explain chapter 11, verse 3, when we are told he had 700 wives. Uh, just think of the insurance policies he'd been taking out. Moses, he warned the Jewish kings to not multiply wives. And it's as though Solomon felt, you know, at some point he knew better. He could get more for the kingdom, doing it his way. And that was the trap he never recovered from. And we all risk this. We, we all risk, you know, uh, taking a hiatus from the spiritual life and trying to bring about results for the kingdom in the flesh. Uh, there was to be separation between Israel and the nations. Israel and everybody else. The word saint means that. We're, it's the true of the church, the Christians also. There's, there's a line between us and the unbeliever. Even if they're family and we love them. We can even like them. But still, we serve the Lord and they don't. And we cannot lose sight of that. I know I come up in a pulpit sometimes and I talk about people who, you know, the cheapskates that refuse to tithe, refuse to give God. It's true. I mean, you know, uh, years ago, and I hope I remember to say this going through Acts, the Sunday crowd needs it more than you as a rule. But um, years ago, Dave Nigro and I went out to the pastor's conference in Marietta, California, a beautiful uh, grounds campus. It was just amazing. And you look at everything there and you say, Chuck Smith brought this about in the spirit. Not one penny that paid for these millions of dollars of improvements and maintenance, not one penny was begged for. Because the Christians that were hungry for the word, they knew what their role was. They knew knew what they had to do before the Lord, and they did it. Well, you say these things from the pulpit and you can hurt the feelings of some folks because they're not doing what they're supposed to do and you're convicting them or a family member. But the fact remains, we have to stay true to the Lord. 
We cannot sweep these facts under the rug because we're afraid somebody who is guilty is going to resent being reminded of their guilt instead of correcting such a thing. And it's not only tithe, there's many things. Uh, church attendance. You know, I can stand up here and say, the Bible is very clear about church attendance. It doesn't mince any words. If you're not attending, you are absent without leave. The Army would say A-W-O-L. The Navy and Marines would say you are, have an unauthorized absence. Paul said you're forsaking the assembly. These are just facts. And anybody who hymns and haws about that thinks they know better than the Bible. So let's be careful that um, we can say these things without, with a spirit of love. Um, of course, unless it's me and I'm excited, then it won't come off that way. That would be good to have smiley faces pop up when you make certain points and emojis and like that. Anyway, uh, this separation where Solomon failed, Leviticus 20, verse 26, And you shall be holy to me, for I, Yahweh, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Well, this is upheld in the New Testament. When Peter comes out and says, you're a royal priesthood, uh, you know, be holy. Your Father in heaven is holy. That's the pursuit of righteousness. Numbers 23, this is Balaam. You know, Balaam was hired to curse the Jews. And uh, when he went to pronounce the curse, a blessing came out. And this is one of the things he said in an attempt to curse. He blesses with these words, a people alone not reckoning itself among the nations. And my point is Solomon was supposed to understand he was not like every other king around him. He loses sight of that and he goes and marries Pharaoh's daughter and doesn't stop there. Became court policy. The Lord placed Israel among the Gentiles to be a witness to them. A witness of the life that Yahweh offered to those who would come to him on his terms. Isaiah 42 verse 6 he says, a light to the Gentiles. Same with the Christian. Our witness, our testimony is supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. And our truth is a hammer that crushes everything that uh, holds up its head against God's word. Uh, so had Israel remained faithful to these terms, so clearly laid out in Deuteronomy 27 through 30, for Solomon we're talking about, then God would have blessed the kingdom. It would have been a dynasty of, of righteousness. It would have continued to be a witness and a lamp, a living example to the nations. But that's not what happened. And here's where it's starting, right here. Here is the beginning of the crime scene. Instead, Israel eventually imitated the Gentiles, worshipped their idols, abandoned their witness to God, and sought leadings from sticks and stones that will break your bones. Uh, that's exactly what they did. Early on in Samuel, well, in the days of Israel, when they cried out for a king, they even verbalized it this way. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Imagine coming to a pastor and say, Pastor, we need you to grow the church like a business grows business. He says, crazy. It's the Lord's work to do these kinds of things. And we would be giving up our trust in the Holy Spirit so that we can implement, uh, what, our own wisdom before God? I have a note here 
to a marker to quote Deuteronomy 12:29, but I don't want to go too long. Uh, and these are the kind of things that just eat into the, our time. But the verse there is just so clear. I have to read it. When Yahweh, your God, cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship Yahweh your God in that way, for every abomination to Yahweh which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they have burned even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods, which still goes on. Abortion is burning their sons and daughters to their gods under the guise of whatever who cares is evil. And, of course, God will forgive instantly those who repent and come to him who may be guilty of such behavior. Anyway, for this reason, because they departed from God, eventually uh, God chastened them. And the Babylonian captivity is all about that. First the Assyrians came, took away the north, and then uh, later the Babylonians came. So Solomon thought he was making political progress. He was unmindful of spiritual progress, bringing Israel into the family of nations. Ooh, he was so shrewd. Some of them were applauding him, not all of them. Instead, the consequence was spiritual deterioration and sin, of course. His his strategies failed because they were in the flesh. So many lessons here for us to not try to bring about spiritual fruit through carnal means through natural means. And uh, courageously, David, he brought peace to Israel on the battlefield. And he remained devout to the Lord in spite of his failures. But carnally, carnally, Solomon, he maintained peace through diplomacy that compromised the integrity of the faith. And this is, you want to say to Solomon, was it worth it? What did you get out of this? Uh, well, let's cover some more. And he married Pharaoh's daughter, a peace by treaty, a marriage treaty. Uh, literally, the Hebrew is Solomon made himself son-in-law to Pharaoh. And uh, this, of course, was the most politically significant marriage that we know Solomon had amongst his 700 wives. It became his foreign policy. It was doomed from the time of Moses, uh, the law forbade Christians from marrying Canaanites, those who were in the promised land. But it did not forbid them from marrying foreigners who converted, such as Rahab and Ruth. Uh, Solomon's marriage alliances eventually caused the kingdom to crumble from within. In fact... After he died and his son Rehoboam comes to the throne, Egypt's king comes down and, and takes what he wants to take. So it didn't even work. The failed ambitions of those who could have been far better off had they just adhered 
to the Lord. Now, Solomon was already married when he married Pharaoh's daughter, and they already had Rehoboam. Uh, she was an Ammonitess, and uh, it sounds painful, I know. But uh, anyway, he's, uh, his alliance, he was already married. He just adds to his marriage, and he thinks this is a good thing. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house. Presumably, she remained a pagan. And based on Second Chronicles 8, the daughter of Pharaoh up from the city of David to the house he had built for her. For he said, my wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the places to which the ark lay. Solomon, can you see the conflict? You're not bringing your wife to David's palace because that's a holy place because David brought the ark up. Well, would you treat her the same way if she loved Yahweh? And yes. Uh, well, no. I probably would have brought it up to the city, but no problem. Doesn't that say anything to you? Well, again, when they fail, it seems to be passed over by many who read the lessons from the scripture, but don't heed them. And the house of Yahweh and the wall around Jerusalem, I mention that because there were many walled cities in that part of the world. Jericho was a walled city. Uh, we'll read about them, uh, their defenses. Verse 2. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of Yahweh until those days. Of course, the writer is probably writing long after these events, maybe even, well, we know for sure some of it was finally published uh, after the captivity or during. But the spiritual conditions, the writer now goes back to, he says, okay, Solomon was having these marriages. Here's the spiritual condition. The temple was not built. Not in the inward man, not uh, outwardly on the grounds. Now, the pagans, they believed their gods were honored if they were worshipped in elevated places like hills and mountains and things like that. And in the Mayans, you know, you look at their <clears throat> ruins and there you know, a lot of steps to get up to where they were sacrificing. So where it says here in verse 2, meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places, uh, the Israelites were not supposed to do this. These uh, open-air centers for worship, the Jews inherited, and then they just, you know, got rid of the pagan gods but, and started worshiping Yahweh at these places. So they, what, 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 what today we may, well, with the Christian holidays, all of them have been Christianized. They're pagan holidays that have been Christianized. Well, that's what they were doing here. And Numbers 33 forbade this. Numbers 33 said, when you go into the Promised Land and you get rid of all those idols, destroy their high places. And this was an, a, a feature in the kingdom that the kings could never rid the people. It wasn't until after the Babylonian captivity did the people stop with the idolatry. Many of the good kings, they tried to get rid of this practice. Uh, they, it became a sacred cow. And in, in Christianity, there are sacred cows. There are churches that practice things that are forbidden, and you just can't get rid of them in those churches that do it. A pastor would come in, and if he condemns it, they fire him. 
uh, it, um, it is sinful behavior in sinners not to be over, you know, not, again, the word self-righteous, not to come against them, well, you know, the kings failed. No, it's not easy to wrench these kind of practices from a people. It says here in verse 2, because there was no house built for the name of Yahweh until those days. Well, offering sacrifices at places other than the temple was forbidden way back in Leviticus, in Moses' law, in Deuteronomy 12. You shall seek the place where Yahweh your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. Uh, but the temple that was in Gibeon, that we'll get to in a little bit when Solomon goes there, the altar of Moses, the brazen altar, there were two altars the Jews had, the golden altar where the incense was burned inside the holy place, and then outside uh, the brazen altar where the blood sacrifices were offered. And this brazen altar was still there, the very one from the days of of Moses. But the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there. They were separated because David took the Ark of the Covenant and he brought it to Jerusalem and put it in a tent. And they were offering sacrifices there too. So uh, there was this fragmented approach to worship, uh, which is why probably enabled the people to get away with um, going to the high places to offer uh, sacrifices to God. In fact, Gibeon, where the temple was, is referred to as a high place also at this time. So there, there was, um, the things were less than ideal, but there was hope. There was a lot of hope. Uh, you know, you could get legalistic and go back in time and just point your finger at all the bad things and miss all the good things. Uh, God would say, well, I can just kill everybody. Because they just can't get it together. But he's not going to do that. He's going, you know, God works with what he has. And we're watching this unfold <clears throat> in, in this chapter of Kings. Where it is far less than perfect. But it is far better than what it could have been. Jesus, of course, will tell the woman at the well. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Um, I was talking with a pastor friend the other day, and he was telling me about another pastor who was just into Israel to a fault. And he says, what do you think about this? He's having rabbis, unconverted rabbis, go into this pulpit and preach. Well, that's a problem. That's ecumenicism at the least, blasphemous at the worst. And he justified it by saying, well, they're building the third temple. Or they're, you know, part of the red heifer and they're just getting ready. So what? That's not Christianity. We have Christ. And when the... Um, Jeremiah rebuked them for this overzealous approach to the temple. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is easy. He was mocking them and rebuking them, really. And uh, no pastor should be so excited about the third temple to where they're no longer excited about integrity. Uh, John says, He who denies that Jesus Messiah has come into the flesh is an antichrist. That's the way it is. That's the separation. 
And a Jew would understand that because the Jews were persecuted. Let's just take, of course, the days of Nazi Germany. They persecuted wherever they went uh, in most parts of the world because they insisted on being separate from everybody. And uh, they became the scapegoat that way. The Jews, many of them made it to Shanghai, and they were doing well there, and then they got persecuted there when the Japanese came. And, but much of this was because they remained distinct as a people to this day. Nobody else has pulled it off. Anyway, uh, the back to this in verse 3, and Solomon, now we turn to uh, verse 3. And Solomon loved Yahweh, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Well, they're the mixed qualities. He loved the Lord, but he's still violating the law. And you, it's just very, you know, rather than trying to consider why God even blessed the guy, uh, I'd, rather, I'd rather concentrate on the goodness of God that leads to repentance. What would have happened if God just slammed the Jews with an iron hand? They wouldn't have survived. And same with the church. What happens if God still treated the church like Sapphire and Ananias? You'd be in big trouble. You told a lion church, gone. Uh, what do you think of my hat? <laughs> Depends on what I can get away with telling you. Um, anyway, uh, you know, again, if you lied, then you by that standard. So a good beginning does not guarantee a good ending. It is not enough to claim you love the Lord. And we meet Christians that will say, I love the Lord, but they're going completely opposite of Scripture. And some of them are just flat-out unbelievers lying about their faith. Others may be really struggling. Yeah, each case is, is different. Solomon achieved magnificence in the eyes of the world by living the way he lived, this double standard. David, not so much. David is not held up by the world. Oh, David, you know, people refer to the treasure, you know, Solomon's mines or, you know, treasures or whatever. But the name of Solomon never moved the true Hebrew that was devout to Yahweh. The name of Solomon never moved their heart as David did to this day. Uh, you know, the believer, Christian, reads the life of David, then when you understand it, and you get blessed. You, but Solomon is just this enigma. He says here in verse 3, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. So after the temple was built, worshiping at the high places became a blatant disobedience. Before the temple was built, it was tolerated by God and really um, was still wrong. They should have gone to where the altar or the ark was, and, but many of the people were not. They had these satellite locations that were forbidden. Verse 4, Now when uh, now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. So Gibeon, the true high place in the context of worshiping God in the promised land on elevated locations, because the tabernacle and the altar was there at this point, Second Chronicles chapter 1. And Second Chronicles 1 through 6 really give you another 
a little bit more information on this whole thing. But it says, now the bronze altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur. You can't never read this, the guy's name, Hur, without saying it's a, it's a man. <laughs> a man named Hur. Anyhow, uh, the son of Hur had made, he put before the tabernacle of Yahweh, Solomon and the assembly sought him there. So it's talking about the same event. This is the same altar from the days of Moses. Solomon is now going there at Gibeon where the altar is, about five miles uh, north of Jerusalem. This time he brings the leaders with him. Uh, a statement made to the nation that it's a unified leadership. That was wise. <clears throat> where it says... A thousand burnt offerings. Uh, well, it doesn't say it here yet, but uh, yes, it does. Uh, Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. The use of the word thousand in the Hebrew, sometimes it's an expression of a large number. There's room to believe that. Uh, this was evidently a festival and that it lasted. It wasn't just one day. Uh, Solomon spends the night there at least once, and he gets this dream. And I just point that out because a thousand, it could have been a thousand. I'm not saying it wasn't, but that's a lot of burnt offerings. You've you got to just do the math. And the, whole, they were, the burnt offering, the whole thing was burned up except for the skin of the animal, which was given to the priest. So the, the priests were making out with all these skins. Uh, but uh, anyway... Just a, a, a big event. Now, he's going to top this when he dedicates the temple, and it will be a literal number. Uh, but here I'm just saying some of the scholars think that there's room to say it's just sort of, you know, we would say just, uh, or some of you might say, buku offerings. Verse 5, At Gibeon, Yahweh appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. See, this is the mercy of God. Instead of showing up and saying, Solomon, you know, I've got a problem with you in these high places and these marriages. God just keeps me focused, focused on the mission, find the solution, get this done within the limitations of his grace and mercy. And here he, Solomon has this dream. And it's connected to his worship here at, at, at the altar. And in this dream, he enters into dialogue with God. Now, David had Nathan and Gad, the prophet, for example, his counselors. But we don't read of any counselors around Solomon. Even though Solomon will write, it is wisdom in the counsel of many. We don't really read of counselors around him. I'm sure he had court advisors, but he doesn't seem to have had a close religious advisor. Uh, Nathan and Gad may have retired and wanted to stay retired by this time. Well, God spoke to Solomon twice, and he appeared to him twice. Four direct engagements with God. <clears throat> the mixed inequalities of this man. So the next time Satan comes along when you have failed God, and wants to disqualify you, don't make it easy for him. Understand how kind and gracious God is. 
Again, I repeat the verse from Paul. It's the goodness of God that led me to repentance. God did not have to be good to, to Paul. He was persecuting Christians. God could have persecuted Paul. But he saves his soul. Because God knew that in Paul there would be this response under these conditions. God appears to Solomon in the dream here at Gibeon. And then he speaks to Solomon during the construction of the temple in chapter 6. He appears again to Solomon during the dedication of the temple, a manifestation for his lifestyle. believe Solomon was seeking those gods before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great concept on his throne as it is this day. Does he even hear what he says? <laughs> you know, he just lays out this map of how David found favor with God. Here's the way from point A to point God. For you, and he, do, he doesn't follow it, but he acknowledges that this is the way. And so David's blessings are joined to David's solemn pursuit of God. And, of course, God's going to receive this. He's not going to rebuke him. And, and God knew that in spite of David's failures, he, he loved the Lord and sought to serve him with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says, you have continued this great kindness for him. So he is admitting that he's on, Solomon is admitting that Solomon is on the throne because of David, not because Solomon is so smart and special. Unlike Saul, none of Saul's descendants are on the throne. They were, they were disqualified. Uh, he says, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Um, <clears throat> because God honored the promises to David and extended the benefits to Solomon and giving him every opportunity to be blessed like David and more having started out with so much more than David started out. David started out with somebody else's sheep, his father's sheep. Solomon starts out with kingdom handed to him. The question is, how old is Solomon now? Well, let's look at that. Verse 7. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Now, he's, of course, not literal. He's not seven years old. You know, <clears throat> laying out this marrying, you know, guys, daughters and stuff. He's a grown, well, he, he's probably, you know, they're all over the place. The rabbis, you know, they're way off, 12 years old. No, that's, that's not it. Because he has a child at this point. Um, Josephus says, ah, oh, he's 14. More than likely, looking at the age of his children, how long he was on, on the throne, and factor these things in. He's anywhere between 17 and 30. That help? So... <laughs> He's, he's probably more likely uh, early 20s, if that. And he is admitting that he is, uh, well, he's being honest and he's being humble at this point. He is inexperienced, but he is mature already. This is a very mature prayer. Remember, he's dreaming. <laughs> that's, that's why it was a mature prayer. In your dreams, <clears throat> he says, I do not know how to go out or come in. In other words, he did not know how to conduct himself in the office of a king. Daunting even for a matured man. Verse 8. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen. A great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Well, the kingdom is probably about 
numbered about 4 million people at this time. Well, I know that because I read it on a census report. No. Well, we did. We did in Second Samuel when we numbered the troops. Then you just said, well, they're married and kids, and you just you estimate it's probably about 4 million people at this time uh, in Israel. So, verse 9, <clears throat> Therefore give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? So he's humble enough to ask. And literally, uh, and, you know, in the proper use of the word, uh, he's saying to God, to asking God for a hearing heart is the Hebrew. That's a sensitive heart that he would be in touch with the people. Uh, he knew it was not enough to be wise. He needed feelings also. He needed to have a connection uh, with God's people. Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. And when the Jews talk about the heart, as did the Greeks, it was the whole of the person. It was your, you know, your, your emotions, your thoughts, and your will. Uh, that made up the heart. Uh, unless you were a cardiologist, of course, then it was the heart. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in my life, in your life, I'm sure you'd rather plant good seeds than weeds. And this is what he is asking. He prayed for wisdom. David influenced him. We talked about this in chapter 2. David you know, I charge you, you know, be strong. Go, stick to the word of God. You, in dealing with these people that I'm telling you you have to take care of, be wise. You're wise. And so I think David stirred that up in Solomon. <clears throat> and Solomon's receiving it, certainly humble at this point in his life, and saying, I, I don't feel very wise, which is a wise statement. Yeah. First Chronicles 22, verse 12. Good thing about the Bible. You say something that um, you need to move from, just get a verse to quote. <clears throat> First Chronicles 22, verse 12. Only may Yahweh give you wisdom and understanding and give you charge concerning Israel that you may keep the law of Yahweh your God. Those are David's words to Solomon. So when David dies, Solomon has already been primed to, to understand that wisdom is something he's got to have as a king. He cannot be just this prodigal king wasting away uh, as many kings uh, would become after, uh, after him. It was by hard work that he benefited from his education. Remember, he was a smart guy. Not only was he wise, that was the gift, but his intelligence was a product of his education, hard work. It would be unrealistic to think that he was just God imparted knowledge to him. So when he knew about when the Queen of Sheba comes and he talks to her about everything, you know, insects and, and, and just everything, it's because he worked hard. He's not a stupid man. And God used this, uh, he, I mean, to write Ecclesiastes. Sometimes you've got to reread some of those verses. And uh, he it seems to have it just flow from him, but it still wasn't enough. He says to judge your people. He wanted wisdom, the sensitive heart to judge the people, God's people, the ability to make right decisions. Many people are smart enough to make a good living, but not wise enough to make a good life. And 
certainly not a, a good life before God. A believer's life will have a series of adjustments, an unending series of adjustments through life. But those adjustments, hopefully, will look to honor God. And Solomon doesn't do that with the wisdom he gets. Because, again, he felt at some point he was better coming up with solutions than trusting the Lord. Have any of you young men felt that um, you could just sort of carve your future without God? That you could just get by because, what, you're smart? Well, if you thought that way, you're proving you weren't too smart. Uh, it's that dependency on God. It doesn't make you a weakling. It, it causes you to get to a place where you identify what your strong points are, and you, you develop them in Christ. If I were good at, uh, say, uh, really good at um, mathematics, and I would recognize, okay, God's given me this. Now I have to look for a forum to, to, to use it, to develop it. And at wherever that place lands me is my field of ministry, my personal field of ministry. I mean, I have my public ministry in the church. I have private ministry of people that come in touch with my life. And this is the, the ideal, and it takes a lot. For me, when I became a steel worker, I knew God gave me, just he made me like Joseph, and I had this superpower. I could hover. Okay, really, I couldn't. But I, I recognized that God gave this to me. And I, I, I'm telling you one of my, my victories. I'm not telling you my defeats. So don't think I'm up here saying, you know, look, I'm special. I did it the right way. Well, I got this one right. We won't talk about the others. And it's true for all of us to, to be able to discern the good from the evil because God has told us, but that's not enough. I need God to narrow it down in certain events so that I can clearly see through the fog. I need God to do that. And proclaiming that does not mean that you're you know, somehow a loser because you have to depend on God. It makes you the winner. It's what David did. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He's the one that leads me and provides for me. I really won't have need for much. Really for anything essential. <clears throat> the time would come when Solomon, knowing good from evil, will allow the evil. The life of Solomon should scare us all. Every single believer should be saying, with those, with that many, with these blessings, these benefits, it did not guarantee that he would serve courageously. And God can give me things, it does not guarantee I'm going to use them the right way. And so that should make me, of course, get more head in the game. He says, This great people of yours. That Hebrew word for great could be translated difficult, a lot, much people, or heavy. Uh, this is the proper translation here. He's, he's saying this is a complex thing. These people are not easy. There are a lot of them, and I need help. Verse 10. So I'll pause there on that statement. So if we ask God for help, and we get the help, will we do what we're supposed to do with it? Or are we going to mess it up like Solomon? Solomon gets the help and, and, and falls on his face too many places. 
But there's good things about him. We'll come to that. Verse 10. The speech pleased Yahweh that Solomon had asked this thing. You, of course, it was a selfless request. You go back to Genesis chapter 44, and there Joseph, his brothers are before him, and Joseph says, I'm keeping Benjamin. You guys can, can drop dead, essentially. And Judah, the brother Judah, stands up and he lays out this selfless speech for Benjamin's freedom on behalf of his father Jacob. He says, look, take me, but my dad won't survive the loss of Benjamin. Just take me. It was so selfless that uh, Joseph it broke his heart. And that's what caused Joseph to say, it's me, surprise. And they, what? <laughs> Anyway, what a bizarre situation. But Joseph had to make sure those guys weren't the same men that they were when they sold him. And he, he put them, talk about vetting someone. Uh, he did it. Anyway, it was that selfless, you know, uh, mindset in Judah that won the day. Verse 11, then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Well, seek you first the kingdom of God, and these things shall be added to you. That's what we're going to get here, because that's what Solomon is doing. He's saying, I need, to, I need the heart to lead your great people. And God was pleased with this. And the ancient kings, like the oligarchs today are known for lavishing themselves with gold and everything else they can get and eliminating their enemies. But God delights in this ruler who's not greedy for self-enrichment. Eight times in this dream, the word ask shows up. Five of them in verse 11 alone. The God is just dialoguing. Yeah, tell me what you want. And you know, James will come along and say, you ask and don't receive, because when you ask, you ask for the wrong things. And that causes us to put some concentration into our prayers, to just not, you know, blurt things out because we want them to think them through a little bit. Uh, and that does, I've found, that that, that helps. Anyway, uh, neither life nor wealth nor revenge, those weren't the things that were valued. he valued. It was to be able to to be a good king. Verse 12. Behold, God's still speaking. I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. Well, this is remarkable, of course. He wrote two psalms. At least we have two of his psalms. Three books of the Bible come from Solomon, 3,000 proverbs, 1,005 songs, but only one made the hit list, the, the top hit, that's the Song of Solomon, which really is, to, again, I, I believe more of a play uh, than anything else. Uh, but in his 40-year reign, those, those accomplishments are remarkable. Try to write one proverb. That, that will last, that people will say, yeah, I like that one, I'm going to use it. And you read the Proverbs of Solomon, and you say, why didn't I think of that? They're, they're so, you know, down to earth. And then you, your second thought is, why didn't Solomon do these things? Anyway, verse 13, 
And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. Uh, echoed in chapter 4, we'll come, come back to this when we get to chapter 4. But again, verse 13 is Matthew 6, 23. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things shall be added. Well, there we see it with Solomon, verse 14. So if you walk in my ways and keep my statutes, my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And there's the fine print. If. It's a condition. Not a possibility. It's, this is the condition. If you, if you walk as David walked with me. Well, what did David do? So special that God is always pointing out David. He never tolerated false gods, not even a little bit. And that's where Solomon's going to fail. How much greater would Solomon have been had he adhered to, to, the, to God in and, and that way? Verse 15, Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream, and he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. What an exciting morning. He wakes up and says, yeah, I was sleeping and I was dreaming, but I was talking to God. I was not dreaming about talking to God. I was talking to God in my dream. And, of course, the subsequent history proves that. Because he was all that God had given him. But he goes straight to the sanctuary. He, he wakes up that morning and he says, I, I, I got to get to church. And he goes straight to the sanctuary, the tent where the Ark of the Covenant is, he alerts everybody, we're going to have this gala to the Lord, this celebration to God. And so he offered more sacrifices to Yahweh in addition to the burnt offerings that he offered in Gibeon. He added peace offerings, which is significant, <clears throat> because the peace offering is gratitude. And you got to eat the meat. Uh, with the burnt offerings, you didn't eat any of it. It just was whole burnt offering, consumed except, as I mentioned, for the skin. But the peace offerings, you gave God... A portion, and the rest, uh, the greater part, belong to the people. And he has it for his servants. And how to win friends and influence people without um, Gail Carnegie's book. Anyway, uh, verse 16. Now, two, now, so now we're going to see the wisdom of Solomon. This was a big hit for everybody. You read it enough, it's kind of boring after one. No, it's not. <laughs> verse 16. Now, two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. Now, of course, this is not following chronological sequence. Uh, but despite their low social standing, they still have access to this king. And he is a great king, at this, even at this point. And he's still young, likely. Only one of these two women have any decency whatsoever. Well, in fact, she's, you know, she's going to be selfless. She's capable of love. The other one's capable of hatred. And it comes out. <clears throat> Verse 17. And one, one woman said, Oh, my Lord, that's Adonai, my master, not Yahweh. <clears throat> this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day, verse 18, after I had given birth, that this woman also gave birth, and we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. 
Well, the significance of the third day mentioned here, it means that they were ceremonially unclean. They were isolated from the rest of the population. It also means that the boys, the, both mothers had a boy, uh, still had, one had five days to go, the other one has uh, eight days before they are circumcised. And, and that will contribute to their identification, but well, that hasn't happened because they're in isolation. In verse 19, and this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. Well, the woman that rolled on her child, she would prove to be a thief, a liar, and an undisturbed murderer at heart, in addition to her heartless, impenitent spirit. She is a mess. Um, one of the most evil people in the Bible, just in this short section. Verse 20. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. It's pretty morbid. Now she is probably exhausted. That's why she's sleeping. I don't know why women who just have babies act so tired. I mean, the hard work is done. <laughs> Kidding. I do not want my truck vandalized. <laughs> She's exhausted, and probably the only thing that's going to wake her up is the cry of her child, which evidently does not take place. Uh, I was watching a documentary on um, a Marines that survived the battle in the South Pacific, and his wife said, when, I, when it was time to wake him up, and he was like the only survivor of his unit, a heavy combat he said, when I wanted to wake him up, I would just whisper in his ear. And, that's, and he would respond right away. Uh, he's, the story is that's how they woke him up on the battlefield. In, in, when they were in their trenches, it's time to change watch. The guy would just whisper to you, get up. And it just carried over. My point is, you can sleep and be sensitive to some things and just shut down to other things. And this is likely the case here. Verse 21 and when I arose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was, dead. But when I examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. Man, what went through her head at that moment? Uh, verse 22. Then the other woman said, No, but the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, No, but the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. Solomon is going like this. Ay, ay, ay. <clears throat> well, she had three days to acquaint herself with her child, her son. Likely the belly button. You know, she probably, that's, that, that's his belly button. Uh, I don't know what else. I mean, it's not like he got a beard. And well, <laughs> what other distinguishing? A little tattoo on the side. Anyway, okay, enough of that. We have to get, get this done. Uh, so anyway, he, she's able to f deduce that she's been had. Verse 23, And the king said, The one says, This is my son who lives, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, No, but your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. He said, I want to get this right, this conundrum, before I begin to deal with it. I want to make sure this is what's happening. Verse 24, then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. Now, they're not handing him the sword. 
he, he's, he, he has people to do this for him. Verse 25, and the king said, he wouldn't have to say divided if he had the sword, right? And the king said, divide the living child in two and give it to one, uh, and give half to one and half to the other. Well, this is why he asked for a heart that was sensitive, right? So you come up with these solutions. <clears throat> it's hard to read this story. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, verse 26, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other said, let him be neither mine nor yours but divide him, cut him in two. You see, he can't, this is one of the evil people. She's worse than Saul, if you ask me. Is anybody going to ask? <laughs> yes, he's worse than Saul. Anyway, uh, uh, the, the heart of the mother, regardless of how life bushwhacked and bruised her, she still has the capacity to love. Uh, she was more than a uh, I mean, there was more to her than just being a harlot, a sinner. There was more to her than her sin. It was love. It covers a multitude of sin. Not so much with the other one. He says here in verse 26, But the other said, Let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. Again, hard to read. The capacity for evil in mankind is, is astounding. Abortionists think that the wicked woman refusing the option of adoption in favor for murder, somehow has that right? I, I think anyone who favors abortion should be banned from celebrating Mother's Day or Father's Day. Yep, sorry, you can't. Nope, you're out. I was expecting an applause. I'm kind of hard. Okay, back to this. We cringe at this story. Verse 27, so the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is the mother of well, that selfless love, ready to sacrifice for the well-being of the, of the one that is love. That, that, that defines love. She cherished the child. She only had him a few days. She loved the child. She had this respect for life. The other one, again, apparently not at all. Verse 28 and all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered. And they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was with him, or in him, to administer justice. Well, i got some questions. Did these two ladies go back to the same home? I'm not going back to that. I mean, I'm going to sleep out on the street before he goes with this person again. This is, a, you talk about an evil neighbor. That's the one. What about the poor neighborhood, the people that had to put up with it? What was she like at the market? Uh, she, murderous, a murderous heart. Yeah, she was a perjurer. What did Solomon do with her? Did he just, I, I mean, she should have been charged with something. More than just, okay, you don't get the child. Now go home and have a nice day. But that's left out of the story. Uh, but what is not left out is our ability to think about these things. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, always challenging us, just uh, this demand when we come to your word to consider ourselves, to consider what is good and what is evil, and to form a response. We thank you. We thank you for these lessons. May you get us all home safely tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.